Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm covering in this audio 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Our context is this. In the first 13 verses of the chapter, Paul has exhorted Timothy to be a good soldier, a good athlete, and a good farmer. He has told Timothy he needs to suffer for the elect. He needs to work strenuously because all those three professions, soldier, athlete, or farmer, require lots of training, discipline, and suffering. So he returns to his theme of dealing with the false teachers that Timothy's dealing with in Ephesus, these Gnostic, Jewish, legalistic type false teachers. And so I'm going to call this section of scripture, Avoiding Irreverent Babble. We start with verse 14. For 2 Timothy 2, Paul says this, Remind them of these things and charge them, talking about the people, Christians in Ephesus, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Again, remember, Paul is writing from, from prison in Rome, and he's writing to Timothy in Ephesus. Now, what things is Paul talking about? He could be referred to the things he's just mentioned or the things he's about to mention. The things he just mentioned were in verses 11 through 13, in which Paul says this, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, that could be what Paul's referring to. I think it probably is, but then it could be the future things that he's getting ready to mention. I say future, the, the following things he's about to mention here in Second Timothy 2 in verses 14 or through 19 approximately. Let me read those to you to give you a what he might be talking about. Remind uh, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So, whatever Paul's talking about, he wants Timothy to remind them. Because, you know, you tell people something one th- time and they need to be reminded. Because people don't remember things. It's just as simple as that. That doesn't mean you repeat them ad nauseum. Do you bore everybody to death monotonously? But when people need to be reminded, they need to be reminded. Paul continues, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Lagamakis, fights about words, semantic definitions that are not related to essential content, uh, concepts that matter. Now, of course, this is quarreling about words that Paul is enjoining against. He's not against discussing theology or discussing sound doctrine. Of course not. But what the password is for the third angel to get from the third hierarchy to the fourth hierarchy so you can avoid this evil flesh in order to get back to the demiurge, that's stupid. Don't do that. It only ruins the hearers. They're wasting their time. These vain words, Paul has mentioned all through the pastoral epistles, especially in these two letters to Timothy. Let me read you what he said, 2 Timothy 2.16, which is two verses from now. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, 1 Timothy 1.3 and 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Where did this angel come from? Where did this person come from? Are you related to 
the Levites or to the Aaronic family of Aaron so you can be a priest and all this stuff that Jews like to get themselves into. Sort of sounds like people in the South talking about who their great-grandmother was married to. Was she married to Wade Hampton? Or one of Wade Hampton's third cousins once removed? Well, that's nice, but no, that's nothing. That's not going to get you closer to God. These myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. 1 Timothy 6, 4 through 5, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unfelt healthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil dis- suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining their godliness is a means of gain. 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble, there's that phrase again, irreverent babble, and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Knowledge, of course, is gnosis. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis, and it's falsely called knowledge. It's in air quotes in the Holman Christian Study Bible. It's in air quotes because it's not really knowledge about God. It's just knowledge about stupidity. Titus 3.9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. You notice genealogies keeps popping up in these silly myths that Paul is complaining about. He tells Titus in the end of verse 9, Titus 3, they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, of course, this is not referred to disputes over the meaning of scriptural doctrine. Of course, it does not mean that. So we need to be careful not to say, oh, I don't want to talk about it. That's controversial. I've, how many times have I heard Christians who have got their heads stuck in the sand and they don't want to look at the Bible and they don't want to examine something outside of their little narrow tradition, either theological or denominational or cultural or whatever. Don't bother me with that. Don't, no, nope, nope, don't talk to me about that. That's called narrow-mindedness. But Paul is not saying be narrow-minded. He's saying don't listen to these nincompoop false teachers. He, tell, he tells the timothy to charge the ephesian christians not to quarrel about all these things why well if you go through the letter of second timothy chapters 2 and also first timothy and the pastoral epistles you can see that these discussions of silly myths and genealogies were useless because the false teachers minds were seared and blinded because other believers who overheard these false myths would falter and stumble these false myths and genealogies and irreverent babblings would lead to further ungodliness and their false teaching would spread like gangrene. That's why, my friends, a church leader has got to deal with false doctrine. If it arises, get rid of it because your sheep are going to be hurt by it. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Present yourself to God, Paul tells Timothy, not to men, but to God. He's the one that judges whether you're approved or not. The word approved is a metallurgical term. It it, it became an idiom for test with a view toward approval. In other words, you boil the silver or gold or whatever you do. I'm not a metallurgist, so I don't know how they do that. But the idea is to prove whether this stuff that's bubbling up here, is that pure gold? Is that pure silver? 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 So the test is with a view towards approval, not testing somebody with a view to destroy them, like the devil tested Jesus trying to destroy him in the desert. It's not, that's not what it means. In fact, there's two great words for test, one with testing for approval and one testing with a view to, towards destruction or disapproval. So Timothy and God expects Timothy to be a 
excuse me, Paul and God expect Timothy to be approved. He's going to pass the test, if you will. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. We don't need to look at these tests as something so bad that it's going to prove that we're worthless in God's eyes. People with bad self-images can come up with that idea. No. He'll test you. You'll be tested. But you'll pass the test if you just follow Jesus and do and follow the scriptures and do what's right and pray all the time and be led by his spirit. You're going to do fine. You'll be a worker who has no need to be ashamed, as Paul tells Timothy, rightly handling the word of truth, which, of course, implies that these false teachers were not rightly handling the word of truth. They were perverting it. That's what false teachers do. I've just I dealt for several years with a hyper-preterist controversy, and, oh, those guys were sharp. They could really, really spin their webs of deceit. And I could sit down and take a lot of time and figure out where the error was and where the illogic was and where the fallacies were, but it liked to wore me out doing it because they're clever, they're deceitful. But a worker who has no need to be ashamed, he rightly handles the word of truth. Now, rightly handling, the Greek means to cut straight, as Ellison says, the commentator I'm using. It, the word was often used of constructing a road, plowing a furrow, building a stone structure, and you need to make it straight. Make the road straight, make the furrow straight, make the stone building straight, the wall straight. So the word of God is a straight path to truth. So in other words, rightly handling means cutting straight for the word of truth, that the word of truth will lead straight to the truth, a path that leads straight to the truth. The King James has here dividing the word of truth. I never have understood that word, and I'm glad the modern translations have gotten rid of it. Adam Clark says this could be an allusion to the care taken to dividing the sacrifices under the law, but then he says that could not have been what Paul was thinking about, even though it's logical you could say that. It just means being able to discern what's right and what's wrong when you read the Bible. That doesn't mean you know everything in the Bible. Who does? But it does mean you don't end up teaching people that there ain't no resurrection of the dead, as Paul's getting ready to complain about here in this chapter, about Hymenaeus and Philetus, and about some people today who are doing the same thing, going around saying there's no resurrection of the dead. It already happened in AD 70. We don't want that kind of stuff. The word of truth that's supposed to be rightly handled, that's the apostolic truth preached by Paul and passed on by Timothy, and passed on to us. Second Timothy 2, verses 16, 17, and 18, Paul tells Timothy, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. More and more. It starts out being ungodly, and it gets worse and worse. Their talk will spread like gangrene. If you think about gangrene in a healthy limb, it starts out small, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and pretty soon you got to amputate. You don't want to amputate anybody in the church, do you? Well, then cut this stuff off at the source. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, I had experience with this. A friend of mine had these people that thought just like Hymenaeus and Philetus. In fact, they were called Neo-Hymenaean heretics because they said the resurrection had already occurred. It had happened in AD 70. Now, they had fancy ways of getting around this verse. Of course, all heretics do. And I wrote a couple of articles dealing with their logic in it. It was extremely subtle and complicated and all. But basically, they were just spinning webs, just trying to snare people. And this is what they would do. They would go to a church, and they would start saying, the resurrection's already occurred. And they would make their arguments. And then when people say, well, that's pretty reasonable. But what do you do about First Thessalonians 4, where obviously the bodies are resurrected uh, with, at Jesus' return? What do you do with John 5 when you have... 
Some in the tombs will be resurrected. All in, it doesn't say some. It says all in the tombs will be resurrected, some to everlasting life and some to eternal damnation. How do you handle that? Because that hasn't happened yet, did it? Did it happen in eighty seventy? And so then they start, and then you start telling them, well, you know, you guys are heretics. Nobody has ever agreed to this. You violate every one of the three ecumenical creeds. We don't believe in creeds. We just believe in the Bible. And you, and, But then what they go to is, you don't love. You're dividing the body of Christ. This is just eschatology. We all disagree on eschatology. I mean, you talk about subtle lies. I've heard, I heard it all, and I watched this go on. And so I started complaining about it loudly, wrote a couple articles on the Preterist Archive, one of which was why it's perfectly okay to say naughty things about heretical preterists. <laughs> and um, I said, you know, I don't want to hear these people talking about love. I call it the love defense. You don't love us because you're condemning our doctrine. Well, I guess Paul didn't love them either because he said they was, their talk was spreading like gangrene. They were shipwreckers of the faith, and they were blasphemous. Well, does Paul not love? Did Jesus not love the people when he said they were whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers? Well, you don't love us because you're saying bad things about our doctrine. See, instead of defending the doctrine, they, they immediately go to your motives. You're not, you're not treating me right. Sniff, sniff, boo-hoo. And I finally got so fed up with it, I, in the article I said, I would like to quote Tina Turner here. What's love got to do with this? So one of the brothers in this church that was being almost destroyed by these neo-hymenean heretics read that line about Tina Turner and broke out laughing because he, he had dealt with all of the arguments that these people used, and he knew exactly what I was talking about. So anyway, these, these heretics have got to be dealt with, and they've got to be dealt with quickly. In fact, my friend who didn't deal with the heretics quickly, church almost got ate up. He had to go around in individually counseling people who had been misled by the heresy. He hardly slept. He, he, I think he told me he had a big headache every night before he went to bed because he felt responsible for these people as a man of great integrity. And it just killed him what happened. I mean, I'm telling you. And um, folks, don't be a nice guy with heretics. This guy is a nice guy. And I told him one time, I said, you know, the problem is you're too nice of a guy. You're too nice a guy because you can't be nice to heretics. You've got to kick their bums out of the church. You have to. And so Paul tells Timothy, avoid this irreverent babble. Don't let their talk spread like gangrene. Don't let them upset the faith of some. Hymenaeus, by the way, was also mentioned in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies concerning made about you that you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. I assume it's the same Hymenaeus. Paul says about them, I have handed over to Satan, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So here Paul calls Hymenaeus a blasphemer. He says he's handed him over to Satan. He says he's shipwrecking people's faith. He gives them Gehenna, folks. He ain't going to put up with this stuff. And Paul is trying to put some steel in Timothy's spine. And he's saying, you not, you can't put up with this stuff either. Now, exactly what was this error? Now, this gets this can get, me te- can, be, can get into technicalities, but let's just give some options real quick. First of all, they said the resurrection had already happened. Well, what does that mean? Ellison says, well, here's option one. It could be a resurrection for Christ only, not for believers. The resurrection's already happened. Jesus rose, so why do you guys think you're going to be resurrected too? Well, of course, that completely contradicts 1 Corinthians 15, does it not? Well, this is exactly what hyperpreterists today say. The resurrection's already occurred. We believe in the resurrection of Christ. We just don't believe in the resurrection, the physical resurrection of believers. 
nonsense. Now, here's a scripture that sometimes is quoted concerning this heresy that Hymenaeus and Philetus were spreading, and I don't think it's applicable, but I'll quote it anyway. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, it doesn't say the resurrection has come, but it says the day of the Lord. And if you're a futurist and you say, well, that's the day of the Lord talking about the end of the world, well, that means the resurrection of the dead is going to happen in the end of the world. So if you're saying that the day of the Lord has come, that means you're saying that the resurrection has already come. And so therefore, this verse is applicable to Hymenaeus and Philetus. However, I don't think so, because I believe this day of the Lord he's talking about is the coming in judgment on Jerusalem in 8070 is predicted by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. And the reason I say that is, why would the Thessalonians even think for a second that Jesus had finally come back? They get a letter, oh, Jesus has already come back. Oh, where is he? Where are the resurrections from the dead? I mean, everything goes on as before, and you're telling, and, 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 and somehow we're thinking that the resurrection has already come? Why would they be so stupid as to think the resurrection had already come when obviously Jesus hadn't come back yet? Where is he? So I don't think that's referring to the end of the world. I think that's referring to the day of the Lord in AD 70. So I don't think this verse cuts against the Hymenaean heretics. However... We don't need that verse to denounce Hymenaeus and Philetus because Paul says right here in 2 Timothy 2, 6 and 2, 18, these guys have said the resurrection has already happened and they're upsetting the faith of some in the church and their talk is spreading like gangrene. So don't let people in your church tell you the resurrection has already happened. The resurrection of the dead is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. It's in all three ecumenical creeds for the very reason that every Christian, they disagreed on a million other things, but they didn't disagree on that. Now, here's another idea what Hymenaeus and Philetus might have been saying. They might, they might be saying, hey, you got born again. That's when you were resurrected. You were spiritual resurrection, but there's, spiritually resurrected, but there's no physical resurrection to follow. And some hyperpreterists actually use that type of argument. I'm talking about modern-day hyperpreterists. No, 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 that's not right, because there is going to be a physical resurrection to follow our, spirit, follow our spiritual new birth. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Here's another good one suggestion that Hymenaeus and Philetus perhaps were teaching that parents are resurrected through their posterity. They come to life again through their posterity. Well, that's, that's a stretch, but I thought I'd mention it because it's within the realm of logical possibility, even though the chance of that being true is about one in five million. So bottom line here is don't let people in your church be heretic to deny the fundamentals of the faith. Maybe, you know, let people be tolerant on the minors. Now, if you want to be a dispensationalist, I consider dispensationalist a theology that is bunkum. But I will, I'm going to church right now with a dispensationalist. All my, my grandparents were dispensationalists. My mother was a dispensationalist. They were not heretics. They were wrong, but they were not heretics. They were not people who should be kicked out of the church because of their erroneous doctrine. We need to make distinctions like that or we're going to end up splitting the church heresy hunting so that's the one extreme. One extreme is every little disagreement, you hound, you pick, and you hammer, and then you kick the people out of the church, and you shun them, and you won't talk to them because they don't agree with you. That's one error. The other error is, let's just all get along together. We're all in this together. We're one in Christ. We all love one another. And then you just let the heretics run amok. Those are two obviously extreme positions to take that are very, very dangerous. What does it mean to upset the faith of some? I just imagine it destroys their peace. I've got a good story. There was a brother in this church that I just mentioned that was destroyed, almost destroyed by a hyper-preterist. 
And he, of course, was about to lose his faith. Look at this brother. About to lose his faith. Not my friend, but there's another guy in the church. And he's about to lose his faith, and he was miserable. And he thought, well, gosh, if the Lord's already come, then where have I, what has happened to me? And I don't, I forgot what all of his problems were, but he was almost destroyed by this heresy. And he stopped at a stoplight, and doggone, if who doesn't pull up next to him is Ravi Zacharias, the famous Ravi Zacharias, the well-known worldwide famous apolog apologetics master. And so this brother, who doesn't know Ravi Zacharias, and Ravi Zacharias doesn't know him, obviously, he is so perturbed that he stops the car and runs over and says, I, I'm sorry to bother you. Can I ask you something? I, I've got a problem with my faith. And Ravi Zacharias, this, who just died last week, went to be with the Lord. Ravi Zacharias stops and gives him some books and some scriptures and talks to him and helps talk his way out, talk this man out of the abyss of darkness that he was in because of this heresy. His faith was upset. He almost lost his faith because of this same heresy that Hymenaeus and Philetus are teaching here, that the resurrection had already come. Don't put up with this crap. If you've got this in your church, you need to get rid of it. Verse 19, 2 Timothy 2. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, a foundation is a part of a building, and building metaphors are metaphors that Paul loved to use. We, let me give you three of them. 1 Corinthians 3.10. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. Ephesians 2.20. Built the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. See the building metaphor, the foundation? 1 Timothy 3.15. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the the church is a strong building. Nothing's going to shake it. Nothing's going to knock it down. Security is in the church. But God's firm foundation stands. There's some options as to what that foundation is. It could be Jesus himself. It could be the message about Jesus. It could be the church itself, the body of Christ. Or it could just be the truth, sound teaching that Paul's talking about. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, the truth includes the church, includes Jesus. Jesus is the truth. However you want to look at what Paul meant about foundation, the point is is that it stands, the truth stands, and it bears a seal. Now, a seal was an official wax seal of ownership, and it also signified integrity, that the doc document was not fake. And so then you could say this seal, quote, the Lord knows those who are his, is, is a seal showing that the, the firm foundation of God was true. Could be, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown believes, that this was an an allusion to the ancient custom of inscribing the purpose of the, build, of the building on the cornerstone. This is what this building is for. Maybe, maybe not. Doesn't matter. What is the seal? The Lord knows who are those who are his. Now, this is a quote from something, obviously. And it's perhaps a quote using the Septuagint. Now, not the Masoretic text, but the Septuagint, number 16.5. And I'll look this up in, a, in the Septuagint. And he spoke to Korah and all his assembly, saying, God has visited and known those that are his and who are holy, and has brought them to himself. And whom he has chosen for himself, he has brought to himself. The Lord knows who are his. Well, now, if the Lord knows you, he's not going to let anything happen to you, is he? Because no means having an intimate relationship with, as in Adam knew Eve. The Lord knows who are his, and let Everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Well, that's a quotation also. 
Here's perhaps where the quotation is from. This is also the Septuagint, Numbers 16, verses 26 through 27. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Separate yourselves from the tents of these stubborn men, and touch nothing that belongs to them. That separate yourself from the tents of these stubborn men. That was Nathan and Abiram in the, in the rebellions. Remember, they got swallowed up. That is the equivalent of saying, Everyone who names the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. It's a little bit of loose allusion, if it is, but that's what some people speculate. Separate yourselves. Depart from iniquity. Separate yourselves in Numbers 16 in the Septuagint and depart from iniquity in the in 1 Timothy 2.19. Well, whatever that, wherever that saying came from, it's obvious. And Paul is saying, Timothy, I don't want you to put up with these false teachers. I want you to stay away from them. Don't be swayed by them. Get away from them. The Lord knows who he is. That, of course, could be Yahweh or it could be Jesus. You, sometimes you just don't know whether it's the second, first person or the second person. The Lord knows those who are his. We go now to 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 21. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, in a great house, this, of course, is a metaphor for the church, as Ellison points out. Now, note the implications for ecclesiology here. Now, the big divide in people who write about ecclesiology is, does the church consist of believers only, or does it consist, or is it a visible church that consists of believers and non-believers? The visible church guys are the Reformed guys. The, belie the believer's church are people who aren't Reformed. The problem with believing in a believer's church is you don't know everybody who's a believer. And sometimes you've got to exercise church discipline and kick people out, and sometimes you have false professions of faith. So it's not an easy answer to that. And the Reformed people solve the problem by saying, well, it just looks like it's the, it's the visible church that you're looking at, but the true church is invisible because only those who belong to Jesus are in it. Well, I myself believe in believers only church. I don't believe in having and calling a church a visible church when it's got non-believers in it, people who don't confess Christ. Now I realize that creates problems. So when I say confess Christ, I mean they make a credible confession of faith that they're in Christ, and as far as we can tell, they're believers. Now if there are non-believers in there, well then they're not part of that church. They're 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 visiting, let's say, or they're encroaching upon the church, on the true church, which is believers only. I believe that if you got and there's nothing wrong with visitors coming to visit. I'm in, in China one time. I had a church meeting that met every Sunday and every single Sunday for a year. This non-Christian Chinese couple came, brought their kids. They're looking for morality. And finally, you know, I kept saying, are you going to accept Christ? No, we're just looking for morals for our kids. Well, they were, you could say, well, then you have a church there that's a visible church. It doesn't have... It has non-believers in it, but I, what I'm saying is, no, it's the believer's church was all those people there who believe, and these people were just visiting. That's the way I look at it. Maybe that's a little oversimplified, but that's the way I look at it. Now, what does this do? What does this have to do with 1 Timothy 2, verse 20? Paul says, In the house, in the church, the vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. The question is, is who are the dishonorable people? Well, I assume it's all these false teachers that he's been talking about. Well, if you say that, then you say, aha, the reformers are right. That means there's a visible church. You've got honorable people in it, Christians. You've got dishonorable people in it, non-Christians, people who just say that they're Christians. Well, my response to that is, 
they're not supposed to be there, these dishonorable people. In fact, Paul says you need to cleanse yourself, Timothy, from what is dishonorable. Or anyone, not just Timothy, should cleanse themselves from what is dishonorable. And if you do that, then you are a vessel for honorable use. And, you, of course, then you can be in the house as somebody who is honorable, i.e. saved. So you're supposed to get rid of the dishonorable people. So, yeah, you got a visible church that's got dishonorable people in it. You kick them out, you exercise church discipline, or you get them saved, one or the other, and then the church is still a, a body of believers, not a body of believers plus non-believers. Now, of course, you can say that the dishonorable, and some people do say this, that the vessels for dishonor are Christians who have less honorable gifts, as in 1 Corinthians 12, you know, give honor to those who have less honor, to the parts of the body, the private parts of the body that have dishonor because they can't be displayed publicly. Well, I think that's reasonable, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here because he spends so much time talking about these false teachers that he wants Timothy to oppose. Well, I think he's talking about false teachers here. And if he's talking about false teachers and a house has got false teachers in it, I don't think he means that the, that the vessels need to stay there like wood and clay vessels. They're necessary in a house. Nothing wrong with that. I think he means he wants to take the wood and clay vessels out and smash them, get rid of them because they're dishonorable. That's a close question and go either way. Paul says he wants the dishonorable vessel to cleanse himself. Ellison points out that the action is done by the choice of the individual. Then God sets him apart as holy. Sanctification is both a divine act and a human act, which and that's exactly true. God takes the initiative and man follows, as Ellison says. That's right. But it is a joint synergistic activity. Sanctification is making yourself holy. You've got to consciously put your feet on the paths of sanctification. And then God will help you get sanctified, but he's not going to force you to do it. That's not like justification. That's a monergistic work because you're dead and dead people can't choose. They can't do anything. But a person alive with the Holy Spirit living in, within, them, within them, yes, you can do something. You can walk holy. So anyway, Paul says, be honorable, vessel, be holy, be set apart. That's what holy means, set apart from the world and dedicated to God. Be set apart as that kind of vessel useful to the master of the house. That's God. He's in charge of the whole thing, ready for every good work. And again, the Bible never shirks good works. It just says you can't get saved by good works. Good works are the fruit of your salvation, but not the root. Now we go to Second Timothy 2, verse 22. Paul tells Timothy, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, when I hear this verse read, I often think that Paul is referring to sexual lust that Timothy is supposed to avoid. I think a lot of people read it that way. That's perhaps reasonable because Timothy was young and young people are more prominent to that kind of thing. But on the other hand, is there any evidence? He was also single as far as we know, so that would make him even more pr prone to it. But as, do we have any evidence that Timothy was inclined to that sort of thing? No, not really, as Gill and Jameson Fawcett point out. And in fact, Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. And in fact, Gill denies that this is what Paul is talking about when he tells Timothy to flee youthful passions. Adam Clark says sexual lust are included in the youthful passions that Paul is enjoining. Jameson Fawcett and Brown likewise says so. Well, here are some examples that Gill says that Paul is probably really talking about when he is exhorting Timothy, and I think Gill's right here, and Clark has some stuff to add too, what Paul is trying to tell Timothy is to avoid the passions of youth that deal with vanity, because this is something young ministers of the, of ministers of the gospel are prone to, and I've seen them, 
been one myself actually, and how the how do these young ministers of the gospel tend to behave? What do they tend to desire? They desire to have popular applause. They want preeminence a lot of times. They like to, a lot of times they like to be contentious with other people. A lot of times they're proudful. They're climbing. They're ambitious. Want to move from one church to another, bigger, 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 bigger ministry, and they have a lust for power, as Adam Clark says. I think that's what Paul's talking to Timothy to avoid. I know that I've heard it said that leaders in the church will be felled by one of the three G's, God, gold, or glory. And I think Paul is not, well, he's already told Timothy actually earlier that the love of money is the root of all evil. I don't think he's talking about girls here, though. I think he's talking about glory, the love for glory to be the big shot. At any rate, we go now to verses 23, 24, 25, and 26. Paul says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, in this section, we've got a problem as to who these opponents are. Now, John Gill mentions both options. He says they could either be non-Christians or they could be Christians. Now, if they're non-Christians, why would Paul tell Timothy to correct his opponents, his non-Christian opponents, with gentleness? I mean, after all, what has Paul said about them? Well, he said in 1 Timothy 1.20, Hominis and Alexander, I have delivered to Satan. Did he, is that gentle? If I told you I was going to deliver you to Satan, would you think that I'm treating you gently? He says they ought to be taught not to blaspheme. Oh, he called them blasphemers. Is that treating them gently? 2 Timothy 2.17 and 18, and their teaching will spread like gangrene. Oh, your teaching is gangrenous. Is that gentle? They have departed from the truth, Hymenes and Philetus, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of some. Oh, you're a faith shipwrecker. How gentle is that? Well, so apparently, I would say from the way Paul treated his opponents, which his attitude being decidedly non-gentle, that Paul is telling Timothy here to treat his Christian opponents with gentleness, those who oppose with gentleness, because that's the way you deal with Christians, with gentleness, but you deal with heretics severely. Now, that is a simple little formula that I think works most of the time, but I don't think it works all the time. And we also have a problem here. He says these opponents, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Well, it sounds like the opponents are in the snare of the devil. Is that talking about Christians? Well, it could be, because Christians could be seduced to the point where they're about to be tricked by the devil. I have a good friend who had a church decimated by the hyperprayers controversy, and people in that church were ensnared by the devil. Some of them almost lost their faith and, w- and went through extreme emotional, spiritual, and mental turmoil because of that heresy, same heresy as that Hymenaeus and Philetus were teaching. So those people that could be snared by the devil could be Christian opponents who needed to be treated with gentleness. So as a general rule, I would say treat heretics like Paul did. Call them blasphemers, get rid of them. But when it comes to people in the church, you be gentle with them and deal with them as Paul did. I think it was with the Galatians, wasn't it? As a gentle nursing mother, we have to make the distinction. Now, Paul says here in the first verse 23, avoid foolish and ignorant controversies. Again, these are controversies over silly myths, irreverent babblings, genealogies. We've talked about that over and over again. I won't read you the verses again. They're ignorant. They don't lead to intelligence. They aren't intelligence. They don't lead to wisdom. They don't lead to truth. 
and they breed quarrels. So stay away from that. Of course, he's not talking about controversies over doctrine. Sometimes you have to make a controversy over doctrine like Paul did. He was in a doctrinal controversy with Hymenaeus and Philetus. Obviously, he wouldn't contradict himself and say, well, I'm such a sinner, I got involved in a controversy. No, it's foolish and ignorant controversies you need to stay away from. You can't ignore the qualification there. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. That could be any servant, but most probably it's referring to teachers because, or elders or pastors because Paul says to Timothy, this servant must not be quarrelsome, kind of everyone, able to teach, and that's what elders do. So he's saying, look, elders in the church need to not quarrel over people, need to be kind to everyone in the church, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Now, ooh, enduring evil? I thought Paul said he wasn't going to put up with people like Hymenaeus, Philetus, calling them all kinds of names and telling Timothy to stay away from them. Not only that, not only the Hymenaeus and Philetus, but the Gnostic, legalistic, heretics, he said in 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with them. Well, that's not putting up with them. That's not enduring evil. So what's Paul talking about here? Well, these are some of my options. Paul could be telling Timothy to put up with a constant battle that's necessary to be fought against the false teachers. These guys bring evil to the church. You've got you to endure it. You've got to fight them. Or it, Paul could be telling Timothy to put up with the fact that some of the church may have been swayed by that falsity, and you've got to correct them with gentleness. With those who oppose, you got to put up with that evil, that trouble that's come to your church and to your life. But I don't think he means tolerating heresy. That that would not make a bit of sense. You correct his opponents with gentleness. As I said, the opponents, I think, are probably Christian opponents in the church, not his heretical opponents. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now, again, I think that's probably talking about Christian opponents. Could refer to the heretics, the false teachers. But I think Paul is here talking about the people in the church who've been swayed by this false teaching. You notice he's not treating them with gentleness and kindness and correcting them with true teaching. That's not a guarantee. As good as it is, that's not a guarantee that they're going to repent and come back to the truth. People are stubborn, man. People can do all kinds of crazy things, and you can't help what they do. So Paul is the same way. He says, perhaps. And in verse 26, he says, they may come to their senses. He doesn't say they will come to their senses. So we've got to put up with that. Our teaching is not necessarily going to be followed, and it's irritating when it's not. I mean, I've had so many people disagree. I know the teaching's good, straight out of the Bible. And I think, oh, this will really bless this person's life. And then you say, no, I'm not going to do that. They don't care. Especially when it comes to marrying non-Christians or getting involved with non-Christians, especially girls doing Chinese girls doing this. Because I talked to a lot of them, and they just got to have a husband, and it doesn't matter whether they're married or not. And that, the Chinese church is totally screwed up on that issue. I mean, I can't tell you how many times there. I would ask them, I said, did your church leaders tell you this? Yeah, they, because we've got to get married by the time we're 30. Culture triumphing over the Word of God. How many times do we see it in America? Well, it's in China, too. So Paul says in verse 26, maybe they'll come and escape from the snare, come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And that sounds like being captured by the devil to do the devil's will. Well, the Greek is actually ambiguous. It could be, if we go back and catch the context here, God may perhaps grant them repentance and they may come to their senses after being captured by God to do God's will. In other words, after they come back to their senses, they're doing God's will. I don't think that's what it means. I think it's after they've been captured by the devil to do his will, they might come to repentance after that. doesn't make any difference theologically or practically. So, ladies and gentlemen, there's one more example of Paul exhorting Timothy how to deal with these nasty heretics. 
Now, I mentioned the controversy about how Paul is supposed to be, Timothy is supposed to be gentle with his opponents, and yet on the other hand, Paul just unloads on his heretical opponents in a very ungentle fashion. Let me give you some deeper thoughts on that. This is my views, my speculations, actually. So take them with a grain of salt. It could be Paul is rough on heretics while he's talking to Timothy. He's not dealing with the heretics directly, but he's talking to Timothy and saying, these people are gangrenous. You've got to get rid of them. But be gentle when you talk to them. Maybe. You know, Jude says in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 1, save others by snatching them from the fire, have mercy on others. So some of them you say, hey, you're going to get burned up. You're going to hell. Be rough with them, but have mercy on the others. You know, God will forgive you for your doctrinal deviations. You know, So maybe that's an indication that we've got to deal with some people differently depending on how they are. Whether they are Christians being seduced or whether they're the seducer seducing the Christians. So they're... When you talk directly with them, you're going to be more gently gentle than when you're talking about them. Well, that's just a speculation. I really don't believe it's true, but I just bring it up as an alternative. Here's another possibility. Maybe Paul's just talking in generalities. In general, you need to be rough on heretics, and in general, you need to be gentle with fellow church members. But sometimes church members are so obstinate that you've got to really come down on them. You've got to do church discipline on them, and you've got to point out to the whole church that they are full of it. Or sometimes you've got a heretic's a real nice guy. And so in these off-the-wall rare instances, you've got to adjust your speaking style. Now, I say this. I had an Internet friend who was an expert on hyperpreterist heresy because she almost got lost her faith because of that controversy. And this woman was really smart and really good and organized, and she could think, and she's great theolog- theologically. She wrote a great book on, on Orthodox preterism, Matthew 24. So she knew what she was doing. And so she dealt with these hyperpreterist heretics all the time. And some of them she wouldn't deal with because they were so nasty. But she said some of them were real nice. And she would deal with the nice ones because she thought, well, maybe I can save some from the fire. So maybe Paul's just talking in generalities. Maybe we can make some exceptions to what he's saying. I, I, this is a serious problem, How to, the tone that you take in dealing with false teaching. It's a serious problem. I've had to deal with it. I've I've had to deal. Be, in fact, one time I wrote an article on why it is perfectly okay to be nasty with hyper to say no. I didn't say it that way. I said why it is perfectly okay to say naughty things about hyperpreterist heretics. So, and of course it is. But on the other hand, if I if I'm talking individually to someone that is treating me with respect and not jumping all over me and and acting like a horse's rear end, well, in that case, I will be nice to him. It all depends on how they come at me. But bottom line is, I'm not going to put up with heresy. These heretics, I know these neo-hymenean heretics that I dealt with, they're so subtle. What they do is, oh, now this is just eschatology. It's no big deal. We all disagree on that. Ah, but we don't all disagree on the second coming of Christ with the resurrection of the dead and the deliverance of the world from its bondage to decay and the fact that the devil has not been thrown in the lake of fire yet. We don't all disagree on that. So they were subtle, see. Most heretics are very subtle. And then the next thing they'll start saying, well, now you're being divisive. You're trying to kick us out of the church. You're dividing the church. Ah, oh, that's the unity defense. And the next thing they say is, you don't love me. You're not showing Christian love to your brother. And so I remember I finally got tired of it, and I wrote an article for the Preterist Archive, the website, and, and, I, and, and it was called, as I said, why it is perfectly okay to say naughty things about hyperpreterist heretics. And I quoted Tina Turner, and I said, what's love got to do with this? 
And somebody that was involved in the church that was getting all split up, he read that and started laughing because he knew how they talked. They always talked like that way. And homosexuals talk the same way. You don't love me. You point out that, well, you know, homosexuality increases the risk of death, tuberculosis, AIDS. you got all kind of health problems, you know. Does God really mean for you to be doing this way? It's not that I hate you. I'm against adultery. Adultery, too. I don't hate adulterers. I'm against People having sex with cats and dogs. I'm not, that don't mean I hate cats and dogs. It doesn't mean I hate people who do it. But I sure as heck don't like it. Well, you can talk about logic all you want. You can talk about love the sinner and hate the sin all you want. They won't listen because they immediately assume that they're being attacked personally and they shut you down. That's the love defense. You don't love me. I'm not going to talk to you. It's pitiful. It's a sign of a coward to use the love defense. In fact, these people give love a bad name. How do you give love a bad name? You think love is something that would never get a bad name. Well, these people manage to do it. All right, enough of heresy. If you think about how much the New Testament talks about heresy, read the Jude, for example. I just read that again. Heresy, heresy, heresy. Galatians, heresy, heresy, heresy. First, Second Timothy, heresy, heresy, heresy. The early church had a big problem with it. We don't have as much problem now because we've shut the heretics out and we've hidden ourselves behind walls of doctrinal statements and denominational bulwarks and that kind of stuff. So now we're just dead and boring <laughs> and we won't listen to anybody else's theology because it might be heretical. We've got other problems in these days, but back then they didn't have all that and so the heretics were full, fair game. I remember as I spent years doing house church and because we didn't have all that all those denominational protections, every heretic in the world would come out from under the woodwork and think they had the chance to spout off their nonsense. I remember one house church guy telling me that Jesus was married. Well, I guess that's not heresy, but it's stupid. But that's the sort of stuff that in a normal church, I say a normal church, any denominational church, an institutional, ecclesiastical, bureaucratic, program-oriented church, they would laugh him out of the room. And so he went to the house churches where people are a little bit more tolerant of differences. And now we got nut nuttiness to put up with. So there's two extremes here. You can be a heresy hunter and go after every little doctrinal deviation and just bleach the life out of your church and, and be a denominated and be a dead Orthodox church. Or you can go to the other extreme and, and just tolerate all kinds of heresy and nonsense either way. It's, is, is an extreme which will destroy Christians' spirituality and faith. And I'm not just talking academically. I've seen it. All right, let's finish up here. Verse 25 says, God may perhaps grant them repentance. Notice this grant is a gift. The gift, it comes from God first. Now, of course, we have to repent, but it's God giving the repentance. He originates it. And that's all i got to say. On first Tim, Second Timothy chapter 2, we will continue with chapter 3 in our next audio. In Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, we'll talk about godliness in the last days. That We'll do that in our next audio. And we will discuss that thorny question, what last days is Paul talking about? The last days of the Jewish nation before 8070? Or in the last days of the planet Earth? A good preterist versus futurist controversy. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.